God's word says, On that day King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the province of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged on him the gallows, because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, and seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. The king's scribes were summoned at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the twenty-third day. And an edict was written according to all that the Jew Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps and the governors and the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces, to each province in its own script and to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and their language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring, Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers, righted on swift horses, that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city city, to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. One And on one day, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples, and the Jews were to be ready on that day to take vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers, mounted on their swift horses that were used in the king's service, rode out hurriedly, urged by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes of blue and white with a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many from the peoples of the country declared themselves Jews, for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Well, in Chuck Colson's book, Loving God, he tells of Dr. Boris Cornfield. He was a Jewish medical doctor who was imprisoned and sent to the Russian Gulag in Siberia. If you're not familiar with that, the Gulag was a system of labor camps in the bitterly cold Siberia where communist Russia would send their prisoners of all types, both violent and political. There the food was meager, the conditions were horrific, and the guards were brutal. Yet, Dr. Cornfield, since he was a medical doctor, had extra rights and privileges because even the guards would need medical care, so they wanted to treat them well. Life was hard, but for Dr. Cornfield, even in Siberia, it could be worse. 
But yet then something amazing happened. This Jewish doctor came to trust in Christ. He came to turn to him for forgiveness of sins. And his life started to change in strange ways. In the past, he'd always signed the form saying that prisoners were well enough to have stricter forms of punishment. But now, knowing that those were lies, he would no longer sign them. Then something even stranger happened, because one man was dying from many things, but one thing starvation, and he saw, as this man was starving, a guard steal his food and eat it. Now, Dr. Cornfield knew this man would probably have died anyways, but he knew what was right was to turn in this guard. And yet, he knew turning in this guard was probably his own life sentence. Because the guards did not take lightly to being punished themselves, and since Dr. Cornfield turned it in that he'd stolen, he was punished. So Dr. Cornfield now lived under the threat of death. Colson then writes, But paradoxically, along with this anxiety came tremendous freedom. Having accepted the possibility of death, Boris Cornfield was now free to live. He no longer turned his eye from cruelty or shrugged his shoulders when he saw injustice. And soon he realized that the anger and hatred and violence in his own soul had vanished. He wondered whether there ever lived another man in Russia who knew such freedom. Well, then a few nights later, as he slept in the prison ward, anxious, a man came in and killed him. And times like that make us wonder, was it really worth it? Shouldn't Cornfield have just gone with the flow? Just sign the petitions, turn a blind eye to the injustice, because is anything good going to come from it anyways? And perhaps in your own life, you're doing what's right. You're not cutting quarters. You're following the rules and Life seems to be getting worse because of it. You wonder, why am I doing all these good things if all these bad things keep happening? And what? why if I do these bad things like these other people I see in life is going better, why don't I pursue that path? Well, this morning as we look for the last time at Esther, we're going to see this grand theme that goes throughout Scripture. And that is that there's a divine reversal. That everything we can see now is not the way that it will always be. It may look now that evil is flourishing and that doing good brings no good from it. And yet in Esther, as we look at the whole story and as we look at the rest of the story, we see that God is at work and good will prevail. With that being said, like Paul Harvey says, let's look at the rest of the story. So last week we left off with Esther having had the second feast and her telling King Ahasuerus that Haman had written this edict to destroy, to kill, annihilate all the Jews, including her. And then Ahasuerus had removed Haman and had him hung on the own gallows he'd made for Mordecai. And a few other great things came from this as well. You may have noticed in chapter 8 that Esther is given all the wealth in the house of Haman. Now, Haman was fabulously wealthy. He was a one percenter of the one percenters. He was the cream of the cream. He was able to promise to King Ahasuerus I can give you two-thirds of the annual budget. And this all now goes to Esther. Not only that, but Mordecai is now given the position and the power of Haman. Even at the beginning of this story, we see a foretaste of this reversal where God exalts the humble and he resists the proud. Well, there's one problem, though, in the story. Haman is removed. Esther now seems safe, but a king's edict cannot be taken away. 
And so Esther has to go again before the king. And remember, going before the king without his request could mean her death. Now she could have then gone, you know what? Haman's gone, I'm going to be safe. It's okay. But no, she again risked her life because she cares for her people. She even comes for pleading, weeping, begging the king for the people. Now there's a subtle irony here because last chapter, Haman was begging, pleading for his own life. And he was not spared. Esther, though, comes and begs and pleads for the life of her people. And the scepter saves her life as it's lowered by Ahasuerus. And they can write a new decree. And they're able to seal it just as it was done before. A decree that will deliver the Jews. And so, just like before, it's written. And it's sent out by the fastest couriers. And it does the exact opposite. Rather than them being annihilated, killed and destroyed, they're able to do that to those who attack them. In other words, they're able to defend themselves. And so we read at the end of chapter 14 that the city rejoices. Again, this idea of reversal. At the end of chapter 3, the city is in tears. Mordecai is on sackcloth and ashes. At the end of chapter 8, he comes out in royal robes. The city rejoices because of God's actions. Not only that, we see that some people become Jews themselves. Now this was probably some who genuinely repented, who saw, wow, only their God is in control, but probably others who, like those in Jesus' parables, come. And they grow. This is wonderful. And they hear it. But then when the cares of the world come, persecution, they wilt away. But we ultimately don't know. But let's see what happens next in chapter 9. We'll read chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them. For the fear of them had fallen on all people, All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men, and also killed... Parshandatha, and Dalphon, and Aspatha, and Paratha, and Adaleah, and Ardiatha, and Parmashtah, and Arsay, and Aradai, and Valsai, the ten sons of Haman, the sons of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed five hundred men, and also the ten sons of Haman. What Then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces. Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict. And let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. 
Now the rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them. But they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th and on the 14th and rested on the 15th day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the 14th day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting as a holiday, and as a day in which they send gifts of food to one another. So this day of destruction in which it had looked like all the Jews were going to be destroyed gets reversed. The divine reversal that they are allowed to defend themselves and they get mastery over those who sought to have mastery over them. Even the governmental leaders who would have been happy to go along with Haman now are happy to go along with Mordecai. Nothing new is under the sun. This is popular? Oh yeah, I'm for it. That's what I believe in. Oh wait, that's no longer popular? No, I hate that. I repudiate everything I used to say about that. That's a horrible view. Becomes popular again. Yes, I actually hold my original view. I agree with all of you. This is what I believe. People are the same yesterday, today, and forever sometimes. We go along with the crowd, and here they are. Oh, Mordecai's in power. We'll help y'all. But you may have noticed several times as they go through, and they are destroying, they never take the plunder. But they do destroy those who hate them. They are able to get 500 in Susa and Haman's sons. And then, Hasuerus, ask Esther, look, all of this has happened. What do you want to happen next? And she says, may we have another day to do this. Now here, a lot of people will start to condemn Esther and say, this is vengeance. This is wrong. She should have been fine with what happened the first day. And yet, as we've noted throughout Esther, we're not told, was this a good thing to do? Was this a bad thing to do? But though we're not told, I want us to pause and reflect on this a little bit because I think it's actually showing us a little of what we might call holy war. And it's something that God had called the Israelites to have against the Amalekite nations. And I want to pause because sometimes, as some of you have said, this is maybe a little troubling for you. Or as you read or talk to non-Christians, this is one of the reasons they might condemn the Bible. How can the Bible say something like this? You know, the discussion might go something like this. You know, imagine a mass murderer. And he's arrested, and then, well, the prison reporter comes to him and goes, well, God told me to do it. And everyone goes, oh, that's ridiculous. God didn't tell him to do that. But, hey, we know that's ridiculous, and yet we believe this, and it says God told people to do it. Why do we believe this when we know it's crazy for that mass murderer to say it? And this, isn't this just racial genocide? We would condemn anyone today for racial genocide. That's wrong. Well, what's going on here? Well, as with many things, there's really two issues. One, we're starting from different assumptions. And two, we don't read all of the Bible. So let's start first with assumptions. You know, we often begin in our culture with the assumption without God being taken into the equation. And so sin is no longer talked about. But what we talk about is morality. You can be more or less immoral. But basically, we're all born good, we're told. And so, yes, there are some bad people like mass murderers and people who want to go and blow up buildings and stuff like that. But basically, we're not that bad. And we definitely shouldn't do anything like capital punishment. We just need to maybe rehabilitate people some. And so if we start with this assumption that people are basically good, and then we throw in human rights, 
Well, then all of these ideas, they just seem to not make that much sense. But what if we start with a different assumption? What if we don't compare ourselves to one another, but we say there is a God and he created everything. And as the creator, he has a right to tell us how to live. And he has a right to set the rules. And his rules are the wages of sin is death. And when we compare us, not to this person over here or this person over here, but we compare ourselves to God, we realize we do deserve his punishment. And one day he's going to send that. And since God can send punishment, it's really fine for him to send punishment in any way he desires. So if we start with that assumption, we begin to look at this a little differently. And then we need to read the rest of the Bible. These commands that I'm going to tie here into Esther in a few minutes, they weren't arbitrary and they weren't racial and they weren't unjust. You know, if we flip back, and we're not going to flip there, but if you looked at Genesis 15, 16, you're in the midst of God's promises to Abraham. And as he's promising him the land, he says, you're not going to get the land yet. And he says, because the iniquity of the Amalekites is not yet complete. You know, God has not brought judgment on the Amalekites yet and taken their land because their sin has not reached the point where he will judge them for it yet. Thus, when God does tell the Israelites to go in, he's doing it to punish the Amalekites for their sin. He's judging them for their iniquity. You know, iniquity is bad as sacrificing their children to false gods. You know, the wages of sin is death, and God gave these nations literally hundreds of years to repent, and they didn't turn. Thus, when Israel comes, destroys them, and takes their land, it's not genocide for genocide's sake. It's not stealing land. It's God executing his just judgment through human agents. It's God judging them for the sins. Along with this, we know it's not racial because think of some of the people in these condemned nations. In Jericho, a condemnation. Rahab is welcome to come out. And any who will tie themselves with her. Any who are in her house can be delivered anyone else could have as well or moab another nation to be destroyed that becomes ruth who becomes the grandmother of david who becomes a descendant of or ancestor of jesus himself it has nothing to do with race and so these commands in the bible are not racial commands of genocide because god hates these races or the jews are racial or racist rather all of this is God sending judgment and yet holding out to any of them mercy if they would have turned. Beyond this, the God of the Bible is not a judgment-loving God. He wasn't, oh, I want to get them. He gave them hundreds of years. He wants to show mercy and compassion. We see that ultimately in the cross of Christ. In the cross, we see his depth of love that he wants to show mercy and justice both. He wants to show love, but he loves his people and he is a God of justice. So he will not just say, I'll arbitrarily remove your sin from you. Well, tying this back into two things. What about modern mass murderers who say, I did this in God's name? Well, we need to realize the major difference between what they're saying and what the Bible's saying. A lot of people say, well, if you believe in God, then any time anyone says they're speaking for God, you have to believe them. It's not what we believe at all. There's historical evidence, many reasons, the resurrection of Jesus that help us know God spoke 
in his word and we can trust it. There's no reason to trust the person who is saying God is telling me to go out and just randomly kill people. That's not what we believe when we say that God speaks. He speaks through his word, not just through random psychopaths. As well, you might be thinking, well, that was interesting. I've wondered those questions. But what about Esther? Why are you bringing up that now? Well, because as we've read, you may have noticed several times that Haman is an Agagite. That is meaning he's from the Amalekites, the nation that iniquity, their iniquity was not yet complete. So here, I think it's better to read this as they are finishing God's command of holy war in these nations. And why do we know that? Well, you may have noticed I emphasized it three times, verses 10, verses 15, and 16. They don't plunder the goods. Well, why not? Because if you read the commands in Deuteronomy, when they do this, they're not to take the nation's goods because it's not about them stealing their goods. It's not about we're mightier than you. It's about God's judgment. So even their goods are not to be taken. That was the sin of Achan in Jericho, the sin of King Saul. So here in Esther, as they go out, they only do what God has told them to. They don't plunder the goods. And God is executing his punishment against the Amalekites for their sins. So we see the rest of the story. And then that chapters 9 and 10 tell how this turns into an annual feast that they call Purim. And how God will bless Mordecai. He makes him second in command of all of the Persian Empire. This is our last sermon in Esther. And I think three big applications need to be made. With the first being faithfulness in a godless world. We've noted this a few times, but as we look at our country and we see it moving in directions that seem godless, we need to be reminded this is nothing new. This may be new for us, but this is not new for God's people. God's people have lived in godless times before. And books like Esther, Daniel, 1 Peter, and others show us how to live as strangers and aliens in this world. You know, part of having the wisdom to live in this world is to follow Jesus' words from Matthew 10.16. In Matthew 10.16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. It's a rather interesting metaphor. Jesus is the shepherd. And so what does he do? Well, he sends his sheep out to the wolves. Well, that's odd. Normally, the shepherd is doing the opposite. I'm keeping the wolves away. And yet Jesus keeps us on earth. He doesn't save us and then whisk us up to heaven. He sends us here and he sends us out amongst the wolves. But he doesn't send us out unarmed because he warns us. And to be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so he says, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. You know, think about Esther. We've seen her wisdom she didn't just go right into the king she prayed she fasted and then when she went as we noted she was very careful how she presented her case she presented it in a way that was most likely to be heard even then when she needed to do what's next she and mordecai wrote a wise edict you know they have to be wise as serpents but as well they have to be innocent as doves you know as we enter the world we can't let it enter into us we need to enter into the filth of the world and not let that filth taint us. And so that's challenging. We need wisdom because we don't want the entertainment of the world to consume us. 
And so we have to think through various things. How do we go out as sheep in the midst of wolves? But that is Jesus calling to us. And so we have to think these things through and live it out. As well, you may have noticed, we've gotten to the end of the book of Esther. We've seen people living faithful to God. And yet, not once have they mentioned a pastor. Not once have they mentioned a priest. Not once have they mentioned a full-time paid ministry worker. You can serve God completely where you are. To fully serve God does not mean selling all and going to Africa to be a missionary. Fully serving God doesn't mean you need to become part of a full-time Christian work. Those are great things, and we want to encourage missionaries to go out. We want to encourage full-time workers in gospel ministry. But you can serve God in government, even godless governments. Sometimes I hear Christians say, No one moral could serve in this government, especially if certain political parties in power. Well, I don't know that any political party today is worse than Ahasuerus. He was willing to allow a whole group of people to be destroyed. And Mordecai was a government official at that time. He didn't resign and go, yep, I'm done. It's an evil empire. I can't serve here. How does that work out? Be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. Takes wisdom. But it's not just here. We saw Daniel serve in a wicked government. We see Nehemiah who served for the king in a wicked government. So be wise as serpent, innocent as doves, knowing that you can be faithful to God even in a godless world. Yet even in Esther, we see this clear contrast between a godless world, godless worldview, and a worldview that is full of God. Notice verse 26, because all of this has happened, and yet they're going to celebrate. In chapter 9, 26, what are they going to call this celebration? Therefore, they called these days Purim, after the term pure. Now, you may remember, pure is just another word for lot, like dice. So it would be like calling a holiday, hey, let's go celebrate dice. Let's go celebrate random chance. Let's go celebrate luck. But they're not celebrating luck. They're not celebrating random chance. It's ironic They're celebrating God's hand, but they call it the opposite. They're saying this is not really a godless world. Haman thinks he controls the world by dice. That's all I'll determine when I should know what's going to happen. But though the world and everyone around is saying this is godless, it's all just random chance. They're saying, no, there is a God who's in control. We're going to celebrate dice because dice are controlled by the hand of God. He controls everything. We don't really live In a godless world, he rules and reigns over all. So we can go through tough times and wonder, is this world really governed by God? And yet we can see in the story of Esther, yes, God is involved even in what may appear to be a godless world. And yet, what if we move back a little bit, Esther? Before all this had changed, we can wonder why are all these good things happening to bad people like Haman? Why are all these bad things happening to good people like us? And these questions are not just raised by Enlightenment thinkers or 21st century skeptics. These are questions raised throughout the Bible. Hold your place and turn over to Psalm 73. Because there we see one psalm in which the psalmist wrestles with this very idea. Psalm 73 that Keith read for us earlier. We see Asaph wrestling with Does it really matter that I'm doing good? 
He starts out in verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he makes this bold statement, God is good. But then verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So here God's good, but he's saying, I I almost slipped away from that. I I almost stopped believing that. Well, why? Verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then he goes through and he gives these kind of exaggerated views of how life is better for the wicked. Because he says things like, verse 4 and 5, they never have any trouble, they never get sick, they never die. Well, of course that's not true, but isn't it honest to the way we think sometimes? Their life is perfect. They have everything together. And if we went and asked them, they'd go, boy, your life is perfect. you got everything together. But as Asaph is looking over at the grass on the other side, he's going, those wicked people, they have it all together. They're oppressing people. Verse 6, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them. All these horrible things. Verse 12, behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. And that's where we were in Esther chapter 3. Haman's getting richer. He's getting more promotions. Mordecai, Esther, they're doing what's right. Edicts of death coming against them. Where's God? And yet then Asaph goes on. He doesn't stop there. He wrestles. He's saying, for all day long, verse 14, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. He's saying, look, when I do what's wrong, I get punished for it. They're doing what's wrong. They're getting rewarded. This isn't fair. And then he says in verse 16, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. As he sits down, he tries to put it together. I'm doing what's right. I get rebuked by God. They do what's wrong. They get, re- they get rewarded. Why do I do wrong things to get punished? They do wrong things to get blessings. Doesn't make sense. But then what does he do? Verse 17. Until, he's wrestling with all this, until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. It's when he came and met with God's people, as he worshipped in the sanctuary, as he was reminded of who God is, that he began to see all this. He began to see that what he could see was not all that would be seen. There would be a divine reversal. Thus, verse 19, he says, How the wicked are utterly destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. You know, Esther could not have painted that picture more perfectly. Haman, looking as though he is on the top of the world, going to the second banquet, two nights in a row, no one else but me and the king. The next morning, he's going to be on top of the world, but not on his feet. He'll be hanging because everything that was there was utterly taken away in a moment. And so we see in Esther this idea of divine reversal. That though the world looks unjust at times, that's not the way it will always be. And so we can trust God in the midst of injustice, for though it is real, And though it hurts, it's not the final word. God is going to make all things right. Again, it may not look that way at this moment. It may look the exact opposite in the situations in which God has placed you. And yet, doing right and suffering for it is not the final word. God will bless you. Doing wrong and having a better life is not how it will end up. God will punish you. As we've gone through Luke, we saw this very thing in Luke chapter 6. 
verses 20 through 26, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. Jesus is saying, look, all that you see now, suffering for him, that's going to be reversed. But then the opposite, he goes on, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. So again, Esther is reminding us that God's enemies will not get away with their wicked devices and deeds. It looks that way at times. Murderers and persecutors get away with it for now. But God will punish every sin, either on that person or it will be placed on his son so that they might be forgiven. So we can trust and know that justice will come. Now this is not a call for passivity. Because Mordecai and Esther, they prayed and trusted God and they acted. So we don't just sit back and go, well, God's going to make it just, so just grin and bear it. No, we pray and act and we trust that even if we can't make things just now, one day God will. And when we're wronged and we don't see it right, we can have hope. And that leads to the last thing, the hope for protection. You know, days after Haman's edict, edict of death, there was mourning, there was weeping in the capital. There were days when there seemed there's no more hope. It's a hopeless situation. Yet Mordecai had hope. Now we have to pause and explain when we use the word hope and the Bible uses hope, it's not the way we commonly use it. Oh, I sure hope I find a lottery ticket today and it's going to be the winning one. Well, that's wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is confident expectation. So Mordecai had a confident expectation. He had a hope that God would protect his people. He was hoping in the fact that God keeps his promises. God promised Abraham, I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12. He knew, he had a confident expectation God would keep that promise. So all of the Jews could not they would not be destroyed. God would protect his people. And he, Mordecai even thought, perhaps this is why Esther was put in this place. Yet even if you're not the one, Esther, God will protect his people. Though their situation looked very bleak, Mordecai had a confident expectation. He had a hope that God would protect his people. Again, as we look at our country, we can despair. We can talk about this court case. We can talk about this situation and as we sit across talking from one another, we can internally go, what's happening to our country? We can despair. And our hope is not that the United States is some wonderful place that has God's special favor. Our hope is in our God, that God will protect his people. And throughout scripture, we see that God has a special concern and protection. God protected Lot from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God protected Elijah and Elisha from the wicked kings of Israel. God protected David from the continual attacks of Saul. God guarded Daniel from the, being eaten by the lions. 
At the same time, we have to admit, God at times has allowed his people to be persecuted, even martyred. Yet in those times, God shows a special concern for his people. After Jesus ascended into heaven, he now sits at the right hand of his Father in heaven. And yet if you read through the New Testament, there's only one time when Jesus is shown not to be seated at the right side of his Father in heaven. It's when he's standing. If you read in Acts 8, it's when Stephen, the disciple, is being stoned to death. And it says he looks up and Jesus was standing in heaven. He has a special concern. He gets up from the throne when he sees his people being hurt. Not only that, on the Damascus Road, when Saul is being, going to persecute the church, what does he say? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He takes it personally. He protects his people. Or in Revelation 6, we are given a glimpse of martyrs who've died for the faith. And they're given a white robe. They're honored in a special way. And they cry out knowing that God will seek and give justice for them. And so we can look. Look at God's care. Look at his protection. Look ultimately at the resurrection. And know that there is hope. Now, this isn't just good news for people in Texas, in a pretty safe country by and large. This is good news for Christians in North Korea, in Nigeria, in Saudi Arabia, who as they gather to worship today or have gathered, have wondered, will we get beaten? Will we be separated from our families? Will we be sent to prison? Will we be killed for gathering to worship? They too can read Esther, can read God's word and go, God always protects his people because he cares. And we couldn't express this any more beautifully than what we read earlier. Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We're regarded as cheap to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. If God protects his people the most precious gift we could ever have been given, God and His love will never be taken away from us. He has made it secure. You are a protected people. And so rest secure in Him, knowing that nothing will ever, no one ever will take you from His hands. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we look at Your Word and we're reminded time and time again of Your love for us shown ultimately in the cross of Christ, shown in your daily care, shown in your care even as we go as sheep out amongst wolves. Lord, we ask your blessings. We ask for trust and hope in you. Would we be people who look to you each day, finding our confident expectation in you? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.